Hi, how are you doing? Yeah? Thanks, Lisa, for rousing the crowd up. Did a good job. Uh, welcome to church. My name is Dom. If I haven't met you, I'm one, one of the pastors of our church. We're one congregation of uh, three. Um, and uh, we meet our, sister, our other congregation has been at Kingsgrove in the morning. But just wanted to welcome you. And uh, we are the most lucky out of all the congregations. And the reason for that is very simple. We have aircon. And for those uh, of you who were fortunate enough to be in Kingsgrove this morning, uh, there's a reason why I, I changed my shirt. Let's put it that way. Now, uh, just to begin, um, what do The Lion King, the Star Wars franchise, and Matrix, the Matrix, apart from them all being movies, have in common? Oh, they're all a trilogy. Hey, man, you guys are clever. Lion King, is Lion King a trilogy? There's three Lion Kings. Wow, okay. There is that. But I was thinking something else. That, that's, uh, that's fantastic. What, any other ideas? What do they have in common? Daddy issues. Matrix? Oh, okay. <laughs> Man, you guys get really deep. The, the King's Drive people just said they're all movies. Um, that is also true. Yeah, that's true. Only two. Now, here's, apart from your brilliant genius answers, here's my answer. They all have terrible sequels. They all have terrible sequels. Well, in the, in the case of Star Wars, a terrible trilogy of sequels. Lion King 2, I don't even think that ever made the cinemas. And Matrix, well, we're just not going to go there. Matrix. They all have terrible sequels. Now, a good sequel on its own, is already tough to do. But when you have a sequel that needs to live up to the hype of a really, really good movie, well, that's really difficult to pull off, isn't it? See, sequels are so difficult that the Huffington Post decided to repost an article onto their website titled, get this, The Ten Commandments of Writing a Great Sequel. Now, I'm just going to uh, share some of those. I'm not going to read out all of them, but I'll read you some of them just so that you can get a bit of a taste. There's the article there. Um, commandment number one to writing a great sequel. Number one, thou shall... I love how they added a thou. Thou shall ensure that the original warrants a sequel. Fair? Commandment number five, thou shall take the original characters and actually develop them unlike Ghostbusters. Commandment number two, thou shall not simply remake the original, like the Karate Kid. It's hard for a sequel to beat a great original. Now today as we continue our Advent series, Advent, um, just coming from the Latin word for coming, I wonder whether, I wonder whether we feel similarly about Jesus' second coming compared to his first you know, the first that we celebrate each and every Christmas. See, I suspect for many of us, we would most naturally would think, consider, appreciate his first coming much more than we do his second. And at one level, it's, it's understandable. See, Christmas, it's just so much more tangible, right? Like, we know it's happened. It's in the past. We have holidays each year surrounding it. Our work often shuts down. We have services dedicated to it. We're surrounded by signs, advertising, carols that all point us to Christmas each and every year to use movie language. It's a real classic, right? And so it's little wonder that Jesus' first coming can 
takes so much more of our attention than his second. I wonder if that's true for you. It's certainly true for me. So, uh, today, this afternoon, in the hustle and the bustle that the lead up to Christmas can often be, it's only nine days away, guys, it's really, really close, my hope for us today is just to pause. Pause for a moment, open God's Word, and for us to look more closely at this sequel of Jesus' second coming and see that it is worth waiting for. Now, it's going to be a bit of a different sermon uh, today because we won't be exclusively in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, but keep it open. We will certainly be coming back to it and spending a fair bit of time in it. But we're going to go through three points that are in your outlines. Follow along, take notes if you'd like. Uh, they're really three questions. What are we waiting for? Number one, how have we tried to wait? And number three, how should we wait? Now, let me pray and then we'll continue to hear from God's Word. Father God, we just thank you for... Uh, the blessing of aircon, uh, the blessing of great weather, and the blessing it is to be in your word and hear you speak. Be with us this afternoon, help us to hear you clearly, and help us to think rightly and act rightly with the reality that your son is coming again. Uh, grip us, we pray, and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Now, what does the New Testament tell us about what to expect of this second coming. Now, we're going to run through a whole bunch of stuff really quickly. There are going to be a whole bunch of Bible verses on uh, the, the screens. Uh, feel free to jot them down, come back to them later. Um, but Jesus himself promises he's going to return, right? Um, Jesus' return is definite, definite. Now, um, if you look at all the biographies, all the Gospels of Jesus, you see this promise. Paul adds to it as well. Uh, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, at the, bottom, the last two verses on the screen, we see the verse that says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. If you look at the New Testament, Jesus' second coming, it's mentioned nearly 300 times. Now, if you do some quick math, and some of you are better than that than I am, uh, if you average it out, that makes it about one in every 13 verses is about the second coming. This is guaranteed. It's happening. You can bank it. Right? And yet, while it's certainly definite, the event will also be uncertain and unexpected. It's not a contradiction. It's uncertain and unexpected in time, even though it will definitely happen. You see, although God the Father has set an exact time, that time has not been revealed. It's going to come suddenly. And so in our passage today, um, and on the screen right at the bottom, it says that this day will come like a thief. Now, I don't know about you, but if you were a thief and the people um, you were trying to rob knew exactly when and where you'd be coming, you'd be a pretty lousy thief. Jesus says in Mark that nobody knows, not even the angels, not even himself, but only the Father knows when He will return. See, the second coming is definite in event, but uncertain and unexpected in time. The second coming is also going to be personal. It's going to be physical. Right? There are those that think that in some way, uh, Jesus' second coming is going to be just spiritual, or maybe even just symbolic, that Jesus will spiritually return, maybe He's already returned, and as believers, we'll just, we'll just kind of know on the inside that is back. And as interesting of an idea that that may be, we see pretty clearly in verses like Acts chapter 1, 
That, that can't be the case, right? Acts chapter 1, what's going on? Jesus, he's ascending physically before his very disciples' eyes at the end of his ministry, and they are told that this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way. See, Jesus' second return will be physical. It won't be spiritual. It's not symbolic. He will come back in personal, which is why it's personal. He will appear as a man like he did when he first came. The New Testament also tells us that Jesus' second coming will be visible and triumphant. Visible and triumphant. See, Jesus' second coming is going to look absolutely nothing like his first. In his first coming, he came in lowly circumstances. He came in humble circumstances. It involved a manger, a baby. There was no room. It almost broke a marriage relationship. Few saw him as a baby. But Jesus' second coming, that's not going to be lowly. It's not even going to be humble. It will be triumphant. He's not going to come as a fragile baby. Jesus is coming with great power. He won't be seen by a few. We see in the passage of Revelation that every eye will see him, all peoples of the earth. He won't be in a manger. He will come in glory with the angels, with him as king. You see, the second advent, the second coming, Jesus' return was going to look nothing like the first. It will be visible to all. It will be triumphant. Now, uh, earlier this week, there was a trailer that was released for Marvel's next movie, Avengers End Game, I think it's called. Now, who's, who's, seen, who's seen this trailer? Yeah, nice. Uh, does, who doesn't like Marvel? Out of... It's okay. We still love you. Um, no. Now, I know not everybody loves superhero movies, uh, Jodie being one of them. Uh, she did like Black Panther, though. Uh, but you might not all ag- so you might not all agree with this post that I'm going to show you next. Um, we, uh, some of us have uh, a mutual friend on Facebook who posted about this um, trailer, and he wrote this. Before watching this, make sure you have a tissue to wipe the drool that will be running from your mouth. Now, again, you might not all agree, but there is a particular member of our church, uh, Derek, (laughs) who commented on this, saying, sorry to pick on you, man, didn't have tissue. Subsequent drool was running down said mouth. See, trailers, whether you like Marvel or not, what are they designed to do? They're designed, they're designed to make you drool. Well, at least metaphorically make you drool. They show snippets of the movie that is to come. They give like inside knowledge. They drop hints about what, the, what will be in the movie. And there are entire YouTube channels dedicated to find these hints. Uh, I don't know why they call this, but I think they're called Easter eggs. And then from these hints and these Easter egg clues, they try to figure out further clues about the movie that's going to release. And so trailers really are all about anticipation. They're all about making you drool for what is to come. And and if it doesn't make you drool, well, the movie's probably not worth watching. What God has chosen to reveal to us in Scripture about Jesus' second coming is like a trailer for what is to come. As you read it, as you hear about it, about it suddenly yet definitely taking place, about how personal it is, how physical it will be, how, how visible, how triumphant it will be, 
what will your response be to this trailer? What will your response be? You know, just this week, uh, when we met together as a staff team, we were sharing that we've all kind of had times, we've all had moments where we would want to maybe do something, experience something, see something uh, before Jesus comes back. I remember a Bible college professor saying desperately that he didn't want Jesus to return when he was walking to hand in his freshly printed PhD dissertation that he just spent five years on, because if he did, then nobody would ever read it. And so I'm not trying to guilt us by asking what will our response be. But there is certainly an opportunity here for us to reflect. As we celebrate Jesus' first coming, how are we waiting for Jesus' second coming? Keep that in the back of your mind. How are we going to respond? Keep that there. We're going to return to it later. So we're going to move to point number two. How have we tried to wait and how have we tried to wait? Now, when I, when I say we, how have we tried to wait, I'm not talking about you as an individual or maybe even us here as a congregation. I'm talking about the church super generally. Everybody who would call themselves believers, whether they actually are or not, right throughout history. How have people responded and waited knowing that Jesus would return? Really broadly, I think there are four ways that the church has waited badly. And ironically, they all kind of start with the letter F to remind us they're not great responses to have. So firstly, there's fleeing. Fleeing. Now, knowing that Jesus will return has led certain parts of the church to flee, to flee from the world around them. Right? Knowing Jesus would return in part motivated monks to avoid the world, to escape from civilization. They withdrew, they isolated themselves. Knowing Jesus would return motivated in part the Amish people. They created this secluded community. That's not a great way to wait. Another way people have waited is by fighting. Knowing that Jesus would return has led to fighting. Um, and not just fighting like metaphorical fighting, military force, fighting to, to, to advance God's kingdom for some in, in history has meant to engage in literal war. Right? You may have heard of the Crusades, for example. Right? You've got this understanding, this, this, this um, information that has twisted men and women to believe that they could cleanse the world with Jesus' heavenly armies by might and by force. And that's a terrible way to wait. That's an unbiblical way to wait. Another way people have waited for Jesus to return is out of foolishness and folly. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher, he, he, he wrote that the great doctrine of the second coming has in a sense fallen into disrepute because of this tendency on the part of some to be more interested in the who and the when of the second coming rather than in the fact of the second coming. Right? There are people who have been more interested in the who and the when of the second coming rather than in the fact of the second coming. You see... There have been periods in Christian history, as recently as the last few decades, that people have poured time, energy, resource into determining how, determining how, when, how and when Jesus will return. Now, growing up, I had a neighbor um, opposite me on, on, the, on the street, and one morning she came and knocked on our door. She's an, a bit of an elderly lady, and she had a, um, a book in her, in her hand, and it was, she used her own typewriter to write this book. Uh, and it was 
this book was filled with notes that she had made over her lifetime that connected the events that were happening in world history to what she believed she was reading in the Bible. And she said, Dom, read this, and I guarantee you that Jesus is going to return before you finish your HSC. I recently had my 10-year high school reunion. Now, obviously, we're curious. Obviously, we want to know when Jesus will return. But to dedicate all this time, all this energy to what we're told is only known by the Father, to somehow deceive ourselves into thinking that um, we can even know this, that's folly. It'd be like those, those YouTubers who create these Easter egg videos to then spend, after the trailer has been re released, the rest of their time before the movie comes out to figuring out the exact scripts of the movie. That would be silly. Or to extend the example in our passage today, that this coming is like a thief. It'd be like spending your entire life trying to work out when you might be robbed. Foolish. But there's another way that we've responded in the church. I'm going to slow down right here. Uh, and that is that we often forget. We forget that Jesus is coming back again. And now I hope you kept the passage in 2 Peter 3 open because we're going to look at it now. You, you see, forgetting was something that the Apostle Peter was really concerned about. So much so that this chapter is pretty much dedicated to addressing it. The followers Peter were writing to were, were at risk in his mind that they would forget about Jesus' return. Because there were people from among them that had actually forgotten. In verse number 5, Peter describes these people as deliberately forgetting. And these folk were actually once among them, and now they're convinced that Christ is no longer coming. And they're trying to persuade the others of that same thought. We see their claim in verse number four, right? have a look. Verse number four, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on and has, as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, what are they saying? They're saying that Jesus has not done anything. Nothing has changed. He said he'd return. He's not here. So why on earth should we expect anything different going into the future? And Peter is appropriately concerned, right? Their influence, what they're going to teach, what they're going to say. And so in chapter 3, Peter will, wants to remind these believers in verse 1 to recall the words spoken in the past, verse 2, so that they do not forget from verse 8. So what sort of things does he write to help them, to help remind them? Well, he goes to the past, Right back to Genesis, to remind these believers what the future of these scoffers will be. He goes back to the past to remind these believers what the future of these scoffers will be. Have a look at verses 5 to 7 in chapter 3. All right, verses 5 to 7. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what's he saying? 
Peter is pretty much going, you're all believers. You believe God created the world. And it, and it seemed like nothing terrible was going to happen. But what happened in Noah's day? The very waters God made were then used to destroy and judge the ungodly. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns, Peter's saying. These scoffers might think nothing has happened and that nothing will happen, but just like the flood was God's divine judgment on the ungodly, Jesus will return, he will return to judge, and you can bank on that. See, friends, Peter is saying to these believers, don't don't forget the fate of these scoffers and their forgetfulness are exactly the same as those in Noah's day. They will be judged. Now, one of the things, um, just as a bit of a side point, that I think we ought to address from a chapter like 2 Peter 3 is the idea that God's judgment seems to look like absolute destruction. It sounds like complete annihilation. You know, elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything will be laid bare. Is, is, is God replacing this earth with a new one after annihilating the old one? Is that, is that what's going to happen? Um, I don't think so, and here's a few thoughts as to why. Um, Peter writes about being destroyed by fire. And most likely, this is metaphorical. Right? In the Old Testament, there are lots of images there of um, judgment, and, and they use the image of fire. And so it's most likely that being destroyed by fire isn't a literal real fire that burns people to the ground. Another thing to bear in mind is that other passages in the Bible, like the one we looked at last week with Pastor Marshall, Romans chapter 8, it talks about creation being liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into glorious freedom. Now, that, that doesn't sound like creation is going to be destroyed and then replaced. It sounds like creation is going to be renewed and transformed. And the last thing to say is, is this. When, when Jesus rose, what happened to the body? The tomb was empty. He was recognized when he had risen. There seems to be an ongoing link between Jesus' old body and his resurrected one. And so if Jesus' body wasn't destroyed and remade, but was instead transformed, it makes a lot of sense that this is the pattern that will continue. And so it seems like the Bible doesn't point to complete annihilation, but a renewing of the old to something new. But coming back to what Peter is trying to say, he's saying, he's saying to these believers, don't forget. Remember the past to know what the future of these scoffers will be. Their fate is judgment. Their fate is destruction. But he doesn't stop there. He also gives a positive reason to not forget. Look at verses 8 to 9. He writes, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter, in these verses, is pretty much saying, don't forget, because there's a really, really good reason why he hasn't come back yet. It's not because he can't. It's not because Jesus is unable to keep his promise like these scoffers think. It's because he won't come, at least not yet. He's being patient. He's extending mercy. 
You see, church, every day that Jesus has not returned shows that his timing and what he thinks as quick and what he thinks as slow, it's, it's different to us. Every day that Jesus has not returned is evidence of God's patience and him extending mercy. Every day he has not returned means that he's not done rescuing people. And so Peter says, don't forget Jesus is returning. And his delay shows how much he still wants people to come to repentance. There is still time. And so maybe you're here today and you're checking out Christianity. It might be your first time. It might, you might, may have been here since we started. right? But in the midst of everything that we've spoken about, I hope you see the patience and mercy that God extends to you. He will return. It's inevitable. So keep coming. I can't think of a much better time than during Christmas to ask your questions. Take that next step, whatever it is for you to explore more about who Jesus is. We're grateful that you're here. But if you're a Jesus follower here today, it's a bit unlikely that you're going to flee from the world knowing Jesus is going to return. It's a bit unlikely you're going to take up arms knowing that Jesus will return. It's unlikely that you're going to start writing a book about precisely when he's going to return. If you're anything like me, while we might not willingly or deliberately forget, like the scoffers in 2 Peter chapter 3, there's another kind of forgetting that perhaps we're more likely to do, that I'm more likely to do. The fact that Peter had to write this chapter to believers means he feared even faithful Jesus followers could begin to absorb ideas from the people and culture around them, even unintentionally, that could steer them away from the truth. And if this is true for believers that were around not long after Jesus' resurrection, how much more is this true for us? We can forget the times we're in, can't we? We are in the last days, Peter says in verse 3. We are in an era in God's epic plan where the only big event left is for Jesus to return. And yet we forget that. In our forgetfulness, we turn good or great things that God has designed to bring maximum enjoyment in its temporariness, if that's a word, and we make them more permanent, more prominent than God designed it to be. Let me give you an example. Um, Jody and I have uh, been married now for a year, recently, and that's been really exciting. It's been really great. Uh, for me, it's been great, at least. I'm not sure about Jody, but uh, it's, been, it's also, though, been really great the last uh, month or so to attend a number of different weddings of friends and hear again all these reminders about what marriage ought to be. There was one particular wedding message where the speaker talked about the couple being like two bottom corners of a triangle and God being the top. And he was saying that uh, the the only way to truly get closer in the way God designed marriage is for uh, the husband and the wife to travel up the sides of the triangle towards God and towards each other. It's pretty good, right? And it made me reflect. There have been so many instances in the last year that I have made our marriage just about us. Almost excluding God. So even though marriage is at its best when we are moving closer to God, and I knew that, and I know that, 
more often than I'd like to admit, our marriage reflected otherwise. We made it more prominent and more permanent. And if we were to continue down that path, the only place it will lead is hurt and disappointment. Friends, marriage is good, but it's temporary. Careers are good, but it's temporary. Family is good, but it's temporary. Friendships are good, but it's temporary. Holidays, experiences, hobbies, traveling, great, good, but they're temporary. Now, the answer to that doesn't mean that we all of a sudden abandon these temporary things, right? It's not like there are only two options here, that if it's permanent, we keep it. If it's not, we ditch it. That's not it. Good and great things are good and great things, to state the obvious. So enjoy them. Dedicate lots of time to it. Treat them as gracious blessings from God to us because they are. But be measured. Remember these things are best enjoyed in these last days when they're temporary. Because when Jesus returns, things are only going to get even better. So if we shouldn't flee, fight, be foolish or forget, how should we wait? We're up to our third point, right? How should we wait? Um, let's come back to that question that we asked earlier, right? If God has given us this trailer of what Jesus' second coming, His advent, is going to be like, what will your response be? What will our response be? Peter, in the rest of the chapter, is going to say a lot about this. For the sake of time, we're not going to go through it all, but let me summarize it with this one phrase. What should our response be? How should we wait? I think we should wait imminently. Right? We should wait imminently. Now, I can't take credit for this suggestion. It's far from my own. It's a word that has been used to describe how we should wait for Jesus' return for ages by Christians infinitely smarter than me. But to wait imminently means to wait as if Jesus' second coming is impending. That it could take place at any time. Like I said before, this is the last big event in God's epic plan to save people, to save His people. He could come at any moment and bring this plan to completion. See, Southwest, um, I think it's really appropriate to think of it as imminently, because also because of what it doesn't say. See, if we don't wait as if Jesus will return immediately, for example, like He's going to walk through those doors right now. Because if, if that's how we thought about Jesus coming back, we'd just always be disappointed or, or we'd always be impatient because He's not here right now. We also shouldn't wait as if Jesus won't return in our lifetimes. Because if we did, while we wouldn't be impatient, humanly speaking, it'd probably encourage us towards laziness. That's why I think waiting imminently is kind of like in between those two responses. It doesn't mean it will be immediate, leading to impatient, nor does it mean that it can't happen soon either, which might lead to laziness. Instead, God, by His Spirit, uses the fact that it could take place at any time, any time, powerfully for our good and our holiness. And that's pretty much the point that Peter makes for the rest of the chapter. In fact, every time, pretty much every time in the New Testament, Jesus' return is mentioned, whether Paul's writing it, John's writing it, Peter's writing it, Jesus saying it, it's always for the purpose to get us passionate about living here and now. The fact that Jesus is returning at any time 
is a call to live holy and godly lives. Why? Why, why does it do that? Well, when Jesus returns, there will be a world with a transformed order. A new heaven and a new earth. One that will barely resemble our present broken world. And if we are imminently waiting for Jesus to return, I think it's only inevitable that God also grows our desire and longing to begin that transformation towards holiness now with His help so that we might prepare for what is to come. If we, if we don't do that, if, if we're not doing that, it would almost be like knowing you are moving to a country that has a foreign culture, that only speaks a foreign language, and you don't want to do anything about it right now. It was fantastic that Jace brought up the, um, uh, uh, the persecution that's happening in China and prayed for it. You may have heard about those arrests of that particular church in China this week. Uh, the church's name, Early Rain Covenant Church. Uh, and it hasn't just been this week. They've experienced ongoing difficulties from the authorities for most of the year. But it's really escalated since last Sunday. Right, the authorities have arrested over 100 members of their church. They've gone to people's homes. They're guarding the entrance and the exits of the church building with police and large trucks. The authorities have traveled across the country to different provinces to justify certain members. All the elders have been arrested. The senior pastor and his wife have been charged for incitement to subvert the state. And they're still... Um, Nobody's heard from them. For the few members that have been released, there have been evidence of beatings being trampled on. There are accounts of food, water, and sleep deprivation. And during this last week, the, this persecution has spread. It's not just for this church anymore. It's for other churches and other Bible colleges nearby. Now, the pastor of this church, his name is Wang Yi, this was no surprise to him. In fact, in September, in preparation for an occasion like this, he wrote a statement. And this is all available uh, and translated online, by the way. Um, if you head to chinapartnership.org, you get live updates of what's happening uh, from the church, for the church, and you can pray with them. But there's a translated excerpt of this statement that the pastor wrote, and I'm going to bring it up to read together. Hopefully you can see it. But it says, he writes... Those who lock me up will one day be locked by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. This is a pastor who I'm sure has had the thought of Jesus returning and the judgment that will come in his mind and his heart all year. You see that right at the beginning of the quote. What has that led to? What has this situation led to for him? Anger? Bitterness? Resentment? I wouldn't blame him if he at least felt a bit of that. But what does he write? He writes that the Lord has filled him with compassion and grief towards his enemies. He prays and asks for patience and wisdom in order to take the gospel to them. 
This is incredible stuff, right? Pastor Wang Yi yearning for Jesus' return is embodying the holy and godly living that we see in 2 Peter chapter 3. And this is completely different to the scoffers that Peter's talking about. You see, the scoffers, they act out of their evil desires because they believe that Jesus wasn't returning. In the chapter before, Peter describes these scoffers as those with spots and with defects. And yet he urges the believers to do the exact opposite. See, just as the scoffers' skepticism about Jesus' coming leads them to immoral living, our waiting for Jesus to return and believing that it will be so leads to holy and godly living. And at the, towards the end of our chapter, in verse 14, Peter commends them and, and pushes them to be spotless and without defect. See, the contrast could not be clearer. And we see that so evidently with this pastor. See, knowing Jesus will return makes so much difference. Friends, as we approach celebrating Jesus' first coming, will that stir us to wait imminently for his second? Because this is a sequel certainly worth waiting for. Let me pray. Father God, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that you haven't left us to our own devices, that you haven't abandoned us, that you, out of great love, came to earth 2,000 years ago as a baby to grow up and to die for us and in our place. And as we remember that amazing truth, particularly over Christmas, Father, would we be yearning for you to return again, for you to come again? Help us to live lives that remember that uh, you are coming King Jesus, that uh, even right now you are sitting enthroned on high. And I just pray that any temptation we might have to live life uh, as if that wasn't that, uh, as if that's not taking place or living life, just forgetting that truth. Father, would we repent of that? Move us by your spirit to live for you. We pray that for our church. And we pray that particularly in, in this season as we lead up to Christmas. We bring these things to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.